0: Let's take a little time and talk now About the state that we are living in Mm. Political spiritual, maybe some laughs While you are listening to Phyllis Favre Yeah
1: Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. Uh, I, I want to I want to give you a peek behind the curtain today. I'm I'm actually recording the show early today. Uh, we are not live. Uh, because I have to, I have to leave from service uh, immediately following our service at Northeast Baptist on Sunday uh, to go and do the eulogy for a very dear, close, personal friend, uh, William Bucky Nicow. Uh And 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 my little tribute to William Bucky Nakal. He was a Korean War veteran. Uh, we worked together in radio in New York City at ninety two three K Rock. Uh, we both sold the Howard Stern Show. Uh, that he looked like somebody that would sell The Stern Show. I did not. Uh, and nobody could ever understand our friendship. We went to lunch all of the time. He was a uh, German white guy uh, who had very conservative views, and, and I'm, a, I'm a liberal black guy who believes in, in all the things that a lot of us liberals believe in, uh, and we used to clash on political beliefs. But beyond that, we were friends. And I think that's a lesson for all of us. Uh, We can disagree politically, but there does not need to be division because of our our disagreements. We can learn how to disagree. Uh, So I hope you'll bear with me today uh, as I tape this program so that I can be in Bergen County uh, to deliver the eulogy for my good friend and one of my mentors throughout life. Cherish the people you have in your life right now. Now, because tomorrow is not promised. All right, let's get into it. Today we've got a very special guest here in the pastor's office. He's been with us before. I truly enjoyed talking to him. Uh, and it's Councilman David O. He has a resolution for a minimum force program with law enforcement here in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, he's looking for some support for that. Listen, you know what happened with George Floyd out in Minnesota. Uh, you know that that was a situation uh, of overreach uh, by the police. And Derek Chauvin has since been convicted and in prison for what he did. Uh, uh, We know what happened here in Philadelphia with Walter Wallace. Uh, Again, uh, beat cops were called when really uh, we needed to have called on somebody that could get to him and really help him and really de-escalate the situation because he was mentally disturbed. Uh, But we didn't have any of those types of individuals on duty at the time. Uh, so Councilman O has is, is authored a resolution and I'm going to let him explain it, but the long and short of it is we're trying to limit the amount uh, of overreach uh, by law enforcement in the city, de-escalate situations, and thereby build better relations with the community and the police force. Build trust, uh, which ultimately is necessary if we're going to cure this scourge of violence that has gripped Philadelphia. I've talked enough. Let me welcome into the pastor's office uh, Councilman David O. Welcome back, sir. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much, Pastor Mason. Thanks for having me
1: on. Well, now, I know that you have studied uh, jiu-jitsu for many, many years. I know that that's something that's been a part of your life. Now, we're talking about a resolution that you've authored that is going to call for minimum force. First of all, why don't you explain to our audience what you mean when you say minimum force?
2: yes thank you very much pastor let me let me take a little bit of time because i think it's important that people understand that there's different terminology sometimes we think it means the same thing but it doesn't um and so let me let me start with this um police officers are civilian law enforcement and public safety not everything has to do with um crime they deal with crime, but they also deal with public safety regulations and things like the Motor Vehicle Code. That's not about crime. That's just about complying with rules and regulation and laws that are not criminal in nature but, but basically civil in nature so that we can interact together um, uh, as, a, as a community and a society. But the thing about police officers is that they are authorized to use deadly force and um people are recruited into the police department they are trained they go to the academy and they come out and then they begin working and after the academy they spend a lot of time on shifts and then when they have a day off you know they have a time with their family let's say and then they're back on the shift the the issue ultimately is what have they been trained to do and what what type of training do they have commensurate with the fact that they have a, a, a firearm, and that they are um, authorized to use that firearm. They cannot abuse um, that responsibility, but how have they been trained? It's one thing to be trained uh, a long time ago, it's another thing to be trained uh, in, in a way that is pretty much at a desk, and it's another thing to be trained under stress and pressure. And that goes hand in hand with also how we select, how we train, how we maintain, and how we weed out uh, officers if they're not fit for the job. So the first thing is every officer on the street um, uh, has a firearm and can use that firearm. What we learned during Walter Wallace Jr. is that not every officer has a taser. And so that, that is a non-lethal force weapon. And we do hear the term, for example, de-escalate, and that is the method to try to uh, calm a situation down, um, try to not let it escalate into physical confrontation or the need for using a firearm. Uh, but what I'm talking about is a little bit different, and it's called minimum force training. And so... Um, police when they talk about non-lethal force they're talking about things like tasers tear gas even clubs uh things that are not their firearm you may unintentionally be injured or even killed by a non-lethal force um instrument such as a taser um minimum force is a mentality and a practice uh to respond in a way um, under stress, under duress, and sometimes even without thinking. For example, uh, there are times when I get in my car and next thing you know, I've arrived at my destination. I'm not sure how I got there, but thankfully I got there in one piece. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, people kind of go through the motions. Um, without really knowing what they're doing, not being cognizant of it. Other times, there are things that they want to do, but under pressure, stress, or even fear, they do things without thinking and, and how they act. Sometimes we call that muscle memory, you know, for athletes. Uh, other times, it's how you've been trained and if I could give an example, for example, someone who plays the piano. If you play a little bit and then you have to uh, uh, perform in front of people, it doesn't seem to work out well. But if you perform so much that you can do it, you know, without thinking, um, even under pressure, the fingers hit the, uh, the keys uh, correctly. What we're trying to do in response to George Floyd Um, what I hope we're trying to do, uh, at least here in the city of Philadelphia, is to not only talk about the fact that we need to institute reforms from a legal perspective or procedural perspective, but we need to institute training so that um, our police officers, our good police officers, um, are able to respond appropriately because they've been trained properly. Um, I sometimes see, for example, videos where a police officer appears to be executing what they've been trained. The problem is that what they've been trained to do is handle an able-bodied person who's young, athletic, and and um, very strong. So when they respond or act in accordance with their training and that person is a senior citizen or a teenager, that is inappropriate use of force. Um, it's also the fact that um, psychologically and physiologically, when people are frightened, their body responds, our bodies respond in a certain way. So, for example, if we see a dog barking at us, um, we see that dog charging at us, we become afraid. Some people freeze, some people run, um, you know, but, but the perception of the threat can be very different than the reality because our body and our mind tell us, in order to protect ourselves, um, that there's a, a threat and a danger and um, that we have to do something. We may not know what to do. We may freeze, um, but our body and our mind may tell us to run. Uh, that may be the wrong thing to do. Quite frankly, you're not going to outrun this dog, but that that's the fight or flight um, response that we have. And that's and something that that, that we deal with a lot in the military, and I did serve in the, in the Army. And um, that type of, type of training, along with uh, martial arts training, is really a mentality, how to judge a system appropriately, as accurately as possible, despite fear and distortion from fear, and then to respond in a way that is intelligent. And hopefully, if you must, you know, hopefully you can talk your way out of it or disengage. But if it comes to um, physical um, hands-on situation, how to know um, the best, most convenient, um, and humane ways to deal with the situation so that there's not an overreaction that results in an untended injury. And I think the fact that we have this type of training and that we require it keeps our police officers well-trained, and it keeps the management of the police department aware of who is, who is responding well to training, who has a positive attitude about learning uh, techniques and methods to deal with civilians appropriately and properly. Uh, at the end of the day, we, we are looking at some extremes you know, for many people, they understand that we will not uh, do well if we just remove police. We have so many murders, we have so much violence in our city. people need protection, they need visible policing but but they want good quality policing, responsive policing, and courteous policing and police who understand how to deal with each situation and you know one of the questions arises that if police officers for example let's say they're well-intentioned intention people but they have a fear of black neighborhoods does that elevate their fear and when there is a a situation that that they perceive to be a deadly situation does it is it enhanced because they're uncomfortable unknowledgeable about the situation and if they're untrained do they pull out those weapons too quickly are they too ready to fire? Do they fire those weapons um, just, uh, you know, without thinking? And next thing you know, there's 15 bullets flying. So, so those are the type of things that minimum force training is important for. It is, it is training officers to understand that you serve civilians, that you will find yourself in deadly situations. But it is up to you to respond appropriately in a way that you have to measure and judge you know, the correct way to handle a situation. And while that may be a split-second decision and it's a tough one to make, it is all the tougher if you have not received the proper training. So that's
1: minimum force. So, so, and just so my listeners can be clear, instead of using the taser, instead of uh, using tear gas or, or, or something along those lines, what you're encouraging through your resolution is that officers be trained to incorporate martial arts, potentially. Uh, uh, what else does that look like?
2: Well, for example, um, because the officer is calm... And because uh, they are not overreacting with fear, they do not automatically pull out a weapon. You know, pulling out a gun is a way of controlling a situation. It may be the wrong way legally and in terms of the circumstance. Like I think many of us had seen the video of the um, Army uh, officer who pulls into a gas station and uh, two police officers approach him. Which was really about a, a traffic investigation, but they have both both of them have drawn their weapons on him. Um, and, and that's uh, you know, uh, an inappropriate response. You know, people may defend that by saying that, you know, traffic stops are are, are, are can be very deadly. I do understand that. however, Pulling out a firearm, pointing at someone's head, is not necessarily the, the proper response either. Um, and so policing is, by nature, a dangerous job, and we need well-trained police officers. At the same time, pulling guns on people uh, that, uh, under a circumstance where there's no violence, no indication of any crime or any weapon, and this is a person wearing a United States uh, Army uh, uniform, if you accidentally pull that trigger and kill him, you know, th- th- that would be... You know, atrocious. Um, so, so I think what, uh, what we're um, uh, trying to do is trying to deal with the fact that a police officer should have the training enough to say, you know, I don't need to um, even engage in this. The person is not compliant. Um, they're not respectful. But I don't see that there's uh, any, you know, like, danger to this. Um, I don't think it's appropriate for me to pull out my gun, even if this person is going to leave. Uh, Let me make the decision that, okay, you know, let's both live for another day. I do want to enforce the law, but, you know, what exactly was the violation here? You know, I think, you know, minimum force is starting with the fact that you don't use any force. And then if you have to deal with someone, how to deal with them without pulling out your weapon, how to deal with them without hitting them with a club, how to deal with the situation without tasing them to unconsciousness. So, so even when you cannot talk your way through it, even when they're non-compliant, compliant, even when it comes to perhaps a, a physical uh, confrontation, how to use the lowest level of force to control the situation. And I think that's what good policing should look like, and I think that would be supported by the community, and I think that officers should be trained that way, and then also be engaged with the community, know the community, and do things whereby our officers and our community members um, get to see each other and know each other and be comfortable with each other.
1: Well, Councilman, I do have to ask you though. Uh, when we talk about police culture, it is exactly that—it's a culture, uh, and in many respects, the the mindset, the culture, the the behaviors are baked in. What we're really talking about here is recalibrating a thought process, uh, and 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 in a culture that uh, has has been, uh, you know. For such a long time, doing the same things. Do you? I mean, obviously you believe it, but but how do we recalibrate that thought process? Because I I believe it's got to be more than training. It actually steps down into your selection process uh, of who you bring on to the force. It goes to getting rid of some people who have demonstrated in the past that they're not good advocates for the community. I mean, talk to us a little bit about how we do change that mindset and that culture.
2: Right. So the first thing I'll say is I have seen uh, nothing, nothing other than my minimum force um, training resolution that, that actually tries to create something different with our police force that we do need, that we rely on, but we want, you know, changes. And they want changes. They don't want to be criminally prosecuted for doing their job they don't want to be fired from their job for trying to do their job and and something goes wrong uh... i think i think like any other type of work situation management the city of philadelphia is responsible for properly training its workforce in the training i do see the opportunities um... for changing a a culture i think there are a lot of good police officers me, me personally i do believe that When you talk about the culture of the police force, I think that uh, what has happened in many cases is the idea that I, the police officer, I want to come home to my wife and kids. And so uh, the first thing that I'm going to do is protect myself and make sure that i'm not in danger and then the second thing i'm going to do is make sure that my fellow police officers are not in danger and i think that that is a mentality i can understand how it developed but i don't think that that is the mentality that we want yes we want our officers to be safe absolutely and we want them to protect each other But to protect and serve the civilians the people That's the primary responsibility, and I will say that I do see it in our military. Our military is very well trained. They go into very difficult situations, and they have ROE, rules of engagement, that can be very difficult and challenging, but for the most part, they do comply with those rules of engagement. And um, they are in situations where they are outnumbered, and the last thing they need to do, and, 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 you know, they, they, they uh, very much try not to uh, incite the general population against the United States or the United States military. That, that's my uh, familiarity with um, military personnel and what I see. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying there aren't errors, mistakes, and things like that. But in general, the military, our military is pretty well trained. That being said, we have a current situation, and I think the way that we can begin to address this is things like minimum force training. And so as we enter a culture where there has not been this level of training that, you know, let's say the training is that when you're engaged with uh, someone who is non-compliant and maybe you tackle them, for example. Well, you know that's presupposing that this person, six foot two, two hundred forty pounds of muscle, twenty five years old, you know, will not be tremendously injured. Um, hopefully, you'll be able to tackle the person and neutralize them and, and handcuff them. But when that officer tackles someone who's sixty five years old, the re- results can be uh, catastrophic. And and if what they're doing is what they've been trained and encouraged and, and they have a mentality that this is the appropriate way to handle a person, but, that, but they have not gauged that this person cannot withstand that level of force without traumatic injury or even death, then that, then that becomes a big problem. So, so, yeah, I do believe that if we don't do anything, it won't change. I do believe, um, based on what I've seen elsewhere that when you begin training and having a mentality of service and of and one of ch- of championing you know the good causes that it does create a culture change and i think we have seen culture changes um you know historically speaking and they typically begin with a change in perception a change in um uh, their idea of of for example pride in their duty, pride in their work um what they believe is their their responsibility, and sometimes it is uh the idea that we're doing something different we're going to change what is what has happened because this is an important mission so 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 i yeah i am I am a believer in that, and I will say that um you know, from my own personal experience, I, I do find that, that um, training and maturity uh, do change people. Um, I'm, I'm a, a believer in redemption. Um, I'm a believer that uh, people have served their time in prison. They have paid their debt, but we do have to help them. They don't just come out and everything works out great for them. They have a mentality, they have a history, they have trauma, they have issues, they need help, um, they have frustrations and angers. Uh, you know, those are things that we need to deal with. And I think, you know, in, 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 in very similarly, uh, I think we can uh, see um, improvement in our police force, and I think our police force wants that improvement. I don't think they want to be hated. I don't think they want to be blamed. I think most of the people who entered the police force, I believe, entered it because they felt a a, a opportunity to do something more in their life, which was to be a peacekeeper, a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. Um, However, it turned out, uh, I think, the first entity to blame is management. Management, did you give the proper tools? Did you give the proper training? Have you tried to improve the situation? And since George Floyd and since Walter Wallace, what we have done is we have, as a city, funded tasers, and tasers are now um, you know, being distributed police officers. But we have also seen that people... Um, at at best maybe it was intentional but at best it's if it's unintentional they grab their taser uh, or they grab what they thought was their taser and they shot someone let's say unintentionally because under stress and poor training they 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 did not they 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 panicked and they they reached for something and they did not confirm that this is not uh, a, a a gun you know this is a taser and and they end up shooting someone um, that those people usually are not trained. They are given titles. They, they, I, the, the one police um, uh, sergeant, I believe, she was a trainer of uh, police officers. But how much training is that? So I, I think those are, those are the issues that, that I look at, and, and, I, I, and I believe that we can uh, change the culture. But I will say that we must try to change it. And in order to do something, we have to actually spend time um, with the training, and the training will help us with selection and retention. So without training, um, you know, without um, trying to do something different where people are agreeable to, the police officer agreeable to this level of training and interaction, we cannot tell who resists it, who says, no, I'm not going to do that. I have my own way of doing things, and I'm going to keep doing what uh, this police force and this city does not want me to do and and that will be a basis for how we identify people who are non-compliant in attitude and purpose,
1: you're listening to Philly's favorite 100.7 and 99.5 HD3. We're talking to Councilman David O. Oh, uh, about his minimum force resolution. And, and sir, again, I want to thank you for giving us your time as we close out the interview. I do want to ask about support. Uh, I know that there are members of uh, Council who believe in the defund the police movement, and 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 we see how far that got us on election day uh, last week. Uh, I think roundly it was not well accepted uh, across the country uh, but I know there are council members that have other beliefs regarding the police talk to us about the support that you are receiving for the resolution and how we move forward yeah um, I receive a lot of support from this for this resolution
2: in neighborhoods and communities that are facing just this tremendous um, gun violence and violence when I when I go to communities where you know they are um, they are separated and um, and insulated by um, by wealth. And by distance from these type of problems, they don't see their police, and and I don't think they 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 recognize that they are well protected by police. They don't they don't need them. They don't see them much. But in communities where you know people cannot get out of their homes, they they're even afraid to stand at a bus station, and people are getting shot getting off the bus, on the bus, you know, standing waiting for the bus. Uh, communities like this want to see the city cares and the way they see the city cares is they see visible they see police officers police cars uh... patrolling to ensure that people are safe uh, you know working with the community and and um, the issue then is, do they want to to make sure that the the, the police can identify friend from foe, uh, who who is a citizen that they need to protect, who is a possible um, uh, perpetrator? Yeah, and and even when dealing with perpetrators, they want police to act appropriately. And I think the community, as you know, is very sensitive about. The fact, and properly so, that sometimes the the police have been very quick to respond with deadly force, and even when there is someone who is non-compliant or who is a perpetrator of some sort, there was never intention for them to be killed, um, and, and 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 that is frightening. So so um, that's where I get support, and I I think that. Um, Uh, people want to see our city do something, and and the thing is, what is being done? Well, it it is difficult to get this resolution passed, and I think because there's um, some people who feel very strongly, as you mentioned, that we need to defund the police, that the police are a problem, and therefore we're better off without police, and they have elected some of our officials, and those officials, you know, um, faithfully, um, you know, take those positions. But, but I think as murders keep escalating in the city, people want something done about it. They do want um, better services, but, but they want um, better policing, and they want policing. Um, you know, safe quarters, you know, for school children is one example of, of what people want. Uh, so for, for folks who are listening, if, if they would like to see um, a step towards um, training, Around minimum force and um, about accountability of training and and in that sense, an idea of of which officers are good officers for the community. Uh, then I urge them to contact your council members and say, listen, we like the minimum force training resolution, and we'd like you to support it so that it can pass and and then we can start implementing you know the, the,
1: the, the, the training itself. Wonderful. Well, listen, Councilman David O., I want to again thank you for coming in the pastor's office, and I really enjoy engaging you in conversation. We get so much good information from you. Uh, we want to wish you the best of luck as you try to move this resolution forward. Uh, I want to encourage our Phillies' favorite listeners to go out and seek more information uh, about Councilman O.'s minimum force resolution, and then go talk to your council members. Believe it or not, they're accessible and they're available. So yeah. so make the most of your time. Councilman O, thank you for joining us in the pastor's office today, sir. Thank you very much, Pastor. Enjoyed my time in your office. All right. We'll talk to you real soon. All right. Take care. All right, Philly's favorite listeners, don't you dare leave your radio dial or leave the app. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hey, Phillies! favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. And I want to thank Councilman David Ohm for being our first guest this afternoon. Uh, And I pray that you got some great information from him that you can use. Always remember, do your research. Talk to your city council members. Push them to look at his resolution and bring it to fruition. I think it can help Philadelphia out uh, in a mighty, mighty way favorable way. Uh, I want to pivot right now, uh, and I want to welcome into the pastor's office the regional communications manager for the American Red Cross. Uh, Her name is Alana Marger, and what we're going to talk about this afternoon again is an emergency blood shortage that's going on in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, uh, We need to address this, so Alana Marger, welcome into the pastor's office. Thank you so much for having me. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, this emergency blood shortage. Now, I will tell you uh, that, that in years past, I would give blood to the American Red Cross uh, every year. Uh, and I know many, many people who have done that. It was always just part of something that we do to give back. So I was surprised when I read uh, the article that there was a blood shortage going on in Philadelphia. Tell us how we got to this point.
3: Well, first, thank you so much for for being an advocate, for being and for being a donor yourself. that's wonderful to hear. Unfortunately, what we're seeing in Philadelphia and across Southeast PA, and really across the country, is we are seeing the lowest blood supply levels that we have had in at least ten years um, for the fall. And so, you may often hear us talk in the winter and in the summer about how. You know, donations go down. There's usually a critical shortage. This is unprecedented because normally after a low summer, we bounce back in the fall. People will return to their regular lives. They return from summer vacations. They return to school. And, you know, the the blood supply once again stabilizes. What we have seen is not only has it not stabilized, it's continued to go down. So we are seeing less people donate than we have seen in at least a decade. And we are asking people to please come out and give blood if they are able, because the reality is that for a patient that needs that life-saving transfusion, there is no alternative. And when they show up at the hospital, it's the blood that's already there that's going to help save their lives. So, So if that blood isn't there, that's a problem.
1: So talk to us a little bit about this. I mean, again, we, we recognize that we're at a critically low level relative to uh, blood donations, but is this as a relate, or does this relate to COVID? Is this a, are people afraid to give blood because of all that's transpired for almost the last two years?
2: It's really interesting
3: that you say that, because at the start of the pandemic, as soon as the governor of Pennsylvania announced that Blood donation was an essential public need, and we could continue to collect blood because it's a public health issue. Um, we were very surprised that people really stepped up in the community despite COVID, and they really did come out and support us. Now, at that time, the blood, the demand for blood was actually down a little bit because hospitals were using less. But apparently over the summer, hospitals began to operate a little bit more as usual. So they started using more blood. So right there was a, a need for more. And you know, we're really not quite sure why it is that people aren't donating right now. Um, you know, because we had seen such generosity during the height of the pandemic, now that vaccines are available, you know, we're curious we're curious why people aren't coming out. Um, But the reality is that that is what's happening. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it, people that, you know, the last last two years have certainly been trying for all of us, right? Yes. And maybe donating blood is not top of mind for people, and we completely understand that. And we also understand that we've been saying blood shortage for a while now, and we don't want to be the boy that cried wolf. Because the reality is, there really is a blood shortage and we're not crying wolf.
1: And you like to have, or the Red Cross likes to have, at least five days' supply of every blood type. Uh, where do you stand right now?
3: Oh, it's not good. Um, some blood types, especially type O and platelets, and platelets are that clotting factor in the blood, we have less than a half a day's supply of those. Wow. So think about that. we like to have a five-day supply. That's considered a good number to have. And that's at every hospital we serve. So not just, you know, one hospital has a five-day supply. They all have a five-day supply. We're down to less than a half-day supply of certain blood types, and that is not a good situation for us to be in.
1: And just so that we understand, or just so that my listeners can understand the gravity of the situation, talk to us just a little bit about what happens in the hospital if you come in, need blood, and there's none available.
3: So our goal, of course, at the Red Cross is to make sure that doesn't happen, but the reality is that our hospital partners do tell us that there have been occasions where, for example. Platelets are are a common um, treatment for cancer patients, and if a cancer patient is due to get two units of platelets to help um, them boost their immune system and to help them feel better, um, maybe instead of those two units, they get a half a unit, you know, because they're trying to make sure that all the patients have access to at least some. So, there's definitely those kinds of things that can happen. Sure. Another thing that can happen is more voluntary surgeries that are less serious. Of course, not emergency of nature, but let's say you had an appointment to have a knee surgery. That might be postponed because it's not critical, and they want to make sure that if something were to happen that the blood would already be there. So it's those kinds of things that, that our hospital partners tell us are they're running into.
1: So. You're listening, you're listening right now, or you're speaking right now to an exclusive audience. We're the only FM gospel radio station in Philadelphia, uh, and a lot of people tune into this show. So let's make use of, of this megaphone that we have. Why don't you share with our listeners how they can engage, how they can donate blood uh, now that we've established that this is something that's needed, like, right now?
3: Absolutely. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, you can go to RedCrossBlood.org. Um, that's RedCrossBlood.org. You can also call 1-800-RED-CROSS. There is an app for that. Of course there is. <laughs> you can. Uh, download There's an app
1: for screens. everything now. So
3: <laughs> <laughs> you can download our free Red Cross Blood donor app from any app store and schedule your appointment there. We we do still ask that you do schedule an appointment. That's one of the things we really changed during COVID. Uh we don't we try not to accept walk ins just because we want to make sure that we're, you know, we're still doing all the COVID um protocols. We're still keeping everyone six feet apart. You have to wear a mask. Um, we're sanitizing all the common areas. Like we're still doing all those things. Um, So because of that, we do ask that you schedule an appointment. But it's super easy. Um, The whole donation process from start to finish takes, we say, about an hour. But the actual donation time that you're on that bed giving a donation is only 8 to 10 minutes. So it's not as scary as you might think.
1: Well, I'll, I'll say this to you. I'm going to make a commitment uh, to make an appointment and go give blood because i know it's necessary uh, and i want to encourage all of our listeners to philly's favor 100.7 fm 99.5 hd3 please please engage the blood that's needed could be for somebody you're related to or a friend of yours so one more time elena uh, let's give them the website and 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 direct them so that they can go and download just one more time
3: redcrossblood.org.
1: All right. Well, listen, and, and I want to apologize to you because we talked before we got on air, and I asked how to pronounce your first name, and then I introduced you and messed it up. So please forgive <laughs> Pastor Mason. I, 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 no I just, worries. I just believe in being transparent. But Miss Elena Mauger, oh. uh, we want to thank you for coming into the pastor's office today to share this very critical information, and we pray that our members, uh, our listeners, will get engaged and give some blood and bring our levels up to where they can, uh, so where we can service the people of Philadelphia. So thank you so much for coming in today. We appreciate you.
3: Thank you so much for having me, and we appreciate uh, your listeners, and we hope that they'll come out to donate. Thank
1: Uh, you. All right. Be blessed. Philly's Favorite listeners, don't you dare leave your radio dial or leave the app. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hey, Philly's Favorite listeners, welcome back into the pastor's office, and we want to now be of help to people who are in need of help. I always tell my congregation here at Northeast Baptist Church that it's a blessing to be a blessing. And, and and if God has been good to you, don't get me started preaching this afternoon, but if he's been good to you, we ought to always be looking at opportunities to pay it forward. So I want to talk a little bit about the earthquake that hit Haiti. Uh, it was devastating. It was a 7.2 on the Richter scale, and now the people of Haiti are suffering. They're hurting, and and I want to call Philly's favorite listeners uh, to the table. Call you into the pastor's office because we need your help. Uh, And in order to facilitate this conversation, I want to invite into the pastor's office today the founder of GUAF, which you'll learn a little bit more about. Uh, His name is Deacon Gilbert Ovid, and I want to invite also his director, Patrick Latouche. Gentlemen, welcome into the pastor's office.
4: Thank you, Pastor Mason. Reverend Mason, we appreciate you invited us. Thank you so much for your concern about Haiti.
1: You're very, very welcome. And Deacon, I know that you are very familiar with being called into the pastor's office, so this should not be unfamiliar territory to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm familiar with it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so first of all, tell us, our Philly's favorite listeners, a little bit about what you've uncovered relative to the situation in Haiti uh, post-earthquake. Tell us a little bit about what's going on over there.
4: Well, it is devastated. I cannot tell you more than you probably already heard because I'm on the radio on TV searching for news. And, of course, I have family there. They, They send me video from time to time. I go to WhatsApp. And look at things. Like this morning, I woke up. First time I, I, I woke up this morning, I found a video where people are calling on the diaspora. They said, We don't have no government. We don't have nothing in the country. We don't have a tent to live. We don't have food. We don't have water. And that the kind of news that I'm listening day after day. I just want to be short here. I don't want to take too much time. No, no, no. That's you know, all right. That's it's all right. Yes, that's, that's the thing that I'm living every day, so you can understand how hard working it is.
1: Sure, sure. Now, you say, <laughs> you, you say you still have family over there. First of all, tell us a little bit, Deacon, about your journey. How long have you been here in the States? And, and, and tell us about the family that you still have over there. Well, uh,
4: I'm from the north side of the country. I'm from the city of Gunaive, uh the north, deep north side of the country. So my, my family are not affected directly because it was in the south side. Okay. And I'm here in this country. I am blessed, you know. And that's why before earthquake in February two, 2020, the Lord put in my heart to create that organization to help the country. And education, it was in my mind. And and I've been in this country for 37 years. I came here with a bag, with a couple pants and shirts, and maybe two pairs of shoes. And now, the country, I am blessed here. So I'm thinking every day about my people, where I came from, How how things could be. If it wasn't for the Lord,
1: absolutely,
4: we are blessed to bless, and that desire was in my heart, and I opened that organization, and I'm glad Patrick joined us. About about twelve other people joined us to get that organization
1: going. All right, so Patrick, tell us a little bit about your Haitian roots, and then we'll talk a little bit about Guav. Uh, thank you for your opportunity, Pastor. It's it's a it's
5: a pleasure to to have the opportunity to, for you to use your platform to help us to get this message out. Like I said, my name is Patrick Latouche. I am married. I have two kids. Um, you know, I'm from the, the west, mostly close to the south uh, part of Haiti. I'm from Leogan, uh very close to Port-au-Prince. Uh, I've been in this country for 20 years. And also, I still have my mom, uh, one sister, and two brothers in Haiti. Um, You know, the question you asked uh, before, uh, you know, uh, got my attention, because, you know, before the earthquake, the situation was already bad. You can understand uh, it's not. It's a. Uh, it's uh, It's a lot more difficult now after the earthquake. Well, uh, this is this is who I am, and uh, especially I'm here to serve. And I thank God for giving me this opportunity
1: to serve the, the the people of Haiti. So, Philly's favorite listeners, you're here in the pastor's office. We're talking to Deacon Gilbert Ovid and Patrick Latouche. They are with an organization called Guaf, which has been founded. To help the people of Haiti, uh, so gentlemen, uh, and I'll start with you, Deacon. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing through Guaf uh, to help the people. Talk to me about the blessings that the people have received from your organization.
4: Well, Guaf, Guaf stands for Gilbert Ovid International Fund for Higher Education. GY, the first two letters, Gilbert Ovid is my son that passed away in 1999 here in this country and this state um, with the and the age of the age of uh, five years so god bless me with two boys gilbert and jerry jerry is now a resident uh, over at brown university hospital okay as a physician so i feel that there's a lot of people in haiti that would love to go to school, to have a degree and career, and they don't have the opportunity. And I was thinking about it in 2020. I said, well, let me make that organization in my, my son name and help some people go to, attend colleges over there. Okay. Well, I'm glad to tell you now, if you go to the website, you're going to see that we have about seven. Seven, not a lot, but seven people that are in college. Wow. Two of them are architecture and engineers, several engineers, some of them for computer technology and others. So we, we are very fortunate. And, and working in education, we find out that it is, we need more. So we start helping some other organization that's already there trying to help. That's why one of the top schools that we supported there is an Okai that is destroyed oh. by the
3: earthquake.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, the School of Solon, Bethel School of Solon. I know the pastor, Pastor al that's Patrick's father-in-law. We support the message of Jacques Mel, It's, a, it's a, another city of uh, of, uh, of Haiti. We support the hospital of asile Communal in Port au prince So we are not rich, but from month to month, God bless us with $200, 300 $500, sometimes $1,000 to send to them. Right so we we that's what we are doing in the
1: country absolutely and then patrick tell us a little bit about uh, some of the relief efforts you're undertaking uh, as a result of the earthquake
5: yeah um obviously we we already uh, you know started doing uh, many things like uh uh sending some cash uh to uh altidor uh, uh, I think uh, last week we sent uh we give a check for one thousand dollars to send there and um also uh people are starting bringing you know uh our staff you know uh to send to send to haiti also uh, we are trying in the meantime you know to mobilize uh, as many people that we can to get stuff uh down to haiti right now it's a little bit difficult to get you know our uh, food and uh you know, clothes and other supplies to Haiti is a little bit difficult. Cash, it's a lot easier for us to do. That's what we're doing right now in at the present moment. But in the meantime, we welcome uh, everything that we can get uh, so we can uh, help those people down there. So that's that's where we at right right now.
1: So why don't you do this? Why don't you share with our Philly's favorite listeners how they can find out more about Guaf and how they can support this very worthwhile effort.
5: Uh like I said, they can they can go to w like G O I F H E dot org. So they can uh they can uh see uh what we do, our mission. And then and, uh, uh, the people that we're already working with, like uh, Brother Gil, uh, uh, Deacon Gilbert, already said we are helping uh, 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 different schools in Haiti, like uh, uh, Kai, Leogan, Gonaive uh, uh Port-au-Prince. We're doing a lot of stuff uh, in Haiti right now. But the best way to connect with us is uh, also visit our website, uh graph dot uh, org, and 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 I'm okay if someone wants to give me a call as a director. My phone is 215-280-8410. 215-280-8410. and also Deacon Ovid can you know give uh, his phone or somebody can give us a call,
1: and uh, we, we will be glad to connect with them. Go ahead, Deacon, if you want to share some contact information.
4: Yes, uh, as you said, the website is guavir. G-O-I-F-H-E dot org. You can email us at guafinc at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to write the letter, P.O. Box uh, 1033 Waslin, P.A. 19001 P.O. Box 1033 Waslin, P.A. 19009 uh, phone number for the organization is 215-657-3792. 215-657-3792.
1: I want to thank you, Deacon Ovid, and I want to thank you, Patrick Latouche, for the work that you're doing to help the people in Haiti. I want to encourage our listeners, please go to the website, please call the number. Uh, It's a blessing to be a blessing. Let us give them the resources they need so that they can be a blessing to the people who've been devastated uh, by the earthquake in Haiti. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in the pastor's office today. Uh, And anytime you need our airwaves to help you, with this wonderful mission of Guap, you just feel free to reach out to us and we'll make it happen for you. All right?
4: Thank you so much, and uh, we really appreciate you.
1: All right. God bless you.
4: Hey, God bless you. Thank you. you
0: Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Mm-hmm. Political spirit to maybe some laughs while you are listening to Phyllis favor. Yeah i